Let us pray. Holy, awesome Father, we give you thanks this day. You have gathered to yourself your people again. Amidst crazy schedules and everything else, you have made yourself known to be far more important than all those needful things to do and far more desirable than what else we would desire in our heart. And now capture our hearts right now for yourself. Holy Spirit, we ask that you just work within us that we might hear this word, this difficult word, because it is never easy to gaze upon sin. Help us to have clear vision now in your word so that our vision can be even clearer as we see our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Today's message, today's passage can be found in Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. You can find it in your Bibles after the book of Acts, or you can find it on the back of your sermon outline. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. May God bless this reading of his word. We're continuing our series in our church in Romans and feels like we've been about a month talking about sin and just the hopelessness against it. Anyone else feel heavy? I mean, I feel heavy. I've got, I've got to preach this thing. So I've had to preach it once already today. You guys are the encore, and it's just hard to hear, hard to stomach. But right here, we've come to the apex of Paul's argument on sin. You see, he's gone from territory that we would find comfortable. He has gone from everyone who does these terrible things. They are worthy of being condemned for their sins. Who can't get along with that? But then he draws the circle closer and tighter. And those people who actually were hanging out were actually people who thought they were God's people. Well, they also are held accountable for their sins. And we start squirming in our sins. Well, see, it's thinking, all right, well, maybe he's talking about the Jews there, um, but we're in Christ, and so, you know, it's not us. We've got, we've got a way out of this. And then, finally, 
today draws that circle so close and so tight. And that's where we are today's me- with today's message today. Uh, the three points of today's message are open poisonous mouths and violent feet. The purpose of the law and coming to the Lord's table. Open poisonous mouths and violent feet. And you can tell that we're already going in some happy, cheerful territory. Um, what is Paul saying here? Because I've just called it the, the pinnacle of his, of his argument on sin that we've been for these past three chapters. And so he's taken almost 20% of this letter to talk about this because it's that important for us. We must get this right. And he even starts off, as it is written, where we see Paul's absolute trust. You see, Paul's about to call everyone a sinner, all right? If I were to call everyone a sinner... Well, what basis do I have to say that? Should you worry at all? And Paul is even saying, you know what? Don't even take it from me. It is in God's word, which is true, which is absolute, which is wonderful. And it is from this word and this word alone that we see our state of affairs. Don't trust anyone else. Go straight to the word of God. And what Paul does in verses 10 through 18, and in your Bibles, you might see a bunch of quote marks. It's because he is quoting from passages of the Old Testament. In particular, he's quoting from the book of Psalms and Isaiah, which tells you how tightly now he's drawing this circle closed. Because in all of this talk about sin and being just held accountable and that no one is righteous and all have sinned and all deserve death and condemnation. Who is he writing to? He was writing not to just the world at large, but to the church, specifically here, the church of Rome, but to the church of Jesus Christ. He is writing this. And he is saying to them, You, who grew up, because most of them were Jewish Christians, right? They grew up as Jews, loving the Old Testament. They loved Torah. They loved Moses and the writings of the prophets and the songs. And he's flipped it around on them. He is saying, you know all those psalms that you sung? Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. You know, if you were a good Jew, or I mean, uh, Israelite in the Old Testament, you might be singing that song thinking... I'm singing that against the Philistines. I'm singing that against the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And then later on against the Greeks and then the Romans. They all suck. But Paul turns it around and says, this is on you. You who believe that you have obeyed God's law, that you have believed in God, This, when God speaks this, he is speaking of you and your sinfulness, your blamefulness, though you might have been comfortable in what you thought was your blamelessness. Or Psalm 5, 9, 
from which he quotes, there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. That the very people, the only people in the world who had the word of God, and they are using the mouths that God has given them to speak death. And you'll see that the first of these, we're talking about speech. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. That your words are so damaging that it's not even just the initial sting that comes from them, but the poison that you inject into someone else with what you say. When his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression, under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. But then you see the second part. So if the first part was calling out these people, these Roman Christians, on their words... Then he calls them out on their deeds, which, which the feet represent. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. You know, we Long Islanders know broken roads. I mean, you'd think we'd pay enough taxes to see, like, roads that aren't just pothole-filled messes. But what Isaiah is saying here is that in our sin, we're as if we're people who just all took sledgehammers and just busted up the Long Island Expressway and said, that's what we're going to drive on and let everyone else drive on. That is our foolishness. That is our sin. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. And Paul quotes, there is no fear of God before his eyes. And so, Paul's argument has gone from universal, although we might think we were an island, to set above that judgment, to getting closer, to realizing that the tsunami of his wrath deserves to cover over us. Isaiah says, in chapter 53 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. You know, when you realize, when you read this, and I can't tell you how many times I've read this thinking that it meant, was speaking about other people, right? Right? Pagans. All right, we can read this and say that all those people in ISIS or just the Burmese Buddhist monks who are killing Christians too, or all over the world, just, you know, this video that John uh, just uh, introduced for us. And if you haven't gone to voiceofthemartyrs.com, please go. They're free. Uh, hand, the free monthly magazine is terrific, and it will give you reasons to pray for our brothers and sisters. It's easy for us to think of those who are persecuting the church and think, man, they're sure not righteous. And their words, I mean, have you seen what the jihadist websites show? You don't even need to know Arabic to realize just that it's just venom. Or you might think closer to home, man, the ACLU is a miserable organization that just wants to scrub out Christianity from the, you know, just from the public square. I see you nodding. So, or just all these other people who just want to spoil everyone's fun. Listen, we are a nation that understands the human right to believe, to pursue your faith. Christians started that here. That didn't just happen. And wow, it stings when people turn that freedom around on us and try to just keep us from having that freedom. But 
The difference, if you ask me, what is the difference between Paul's argument here and these other chapters of sin? It's that this is about us. This is about us as people who think as we belong to Christ's church and think that as we're doing the things that God desires us to do, that therein is our error. And you know what? We're not really terrific at doing what we're supposed to be doing either. Jesus called people out on this, didn't he? Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, Matthew chapter 23. You are like whitewashed tombs, that death language again, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean, that you are just a sack of death walking around. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell. Now, as a pastor, I get really worried when I read passages like this, and not everyone should presume to be teachers, for they will be judged more harshly. And I think, can think of like three decades of just scandals in the church where leaders of the church just caused people to have such reason to mock God and His people. I think in the 80s, with Jimmy and Tammy Faye Baker, I'm just that mascara, just, or Jimmy Swaggart and that tearful confession of his sins for embezzling, for she was forgiven, but then he did it again, and he's, I think, 25 years in jail now for that. Or, you know, just in uh, early 2000, um, just uh, we have Ted Haggard, pastor of the largest evangelical church in Colorado. And then being found, just pursuing homosexual attraction and just in really just um, compromising situation. Or this year with the Ashley Madison scandal, right? Now, yes, there's a lot of arguments that lots of people, when they put their names into Ashley Madison, they put other people's names. And so people could have put like Billy Graham or other pastors' names in there, but there were hundreds of pastors who still had Ashley Madison accounts you know, one poor guy, he, uh, his shame was so great at being found that he committed suicide rather than doing what we would have hoped people would do, turn to the Lord in confession and repentance and find his grace to be great. So Jesus is talking about the Pharisees who looked so good. They were tithing even a, di- a tenth of their herb garden. All right? They're dill and they're cumin. I had an herb garden for the very first time this year. I have no idea how to calculate what a tenth of that would be. They were intense on what appeared to be good practice. But those deeds, even the deeds that look good, are deeds that are damnable when we rest on them. See, James 1, verse 26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And so there's a connection between then the words that we believe, that we say, we believe, we say, and then we do. But it starts with what we believe. And if we're not thinking through where the epicenter of our heart should be, our trust should be, then our words, whether they sound good or not, are worthless. And our deeds, whether they look good or not, are worthless. The Bible calls them filthy rags as before the Lord. 
Because to him, he doesn't need, he doesn't need any of it. Our offering, our obedience, our sacrifice, none of it. He has claimed one treasure for himself, our hearts. But our hearts want so many other things. You know, James, brother of Jesus, continues and says in chapter 3, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praising and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. And James is certainly remembering Jesus, as he said in Matthew 15. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And so we look and see all the times that if this passage is about us, we see our sin. And the thing is, is that I love you and I see so many of your good works. I love this church for the love that it shows to others and the welcoming that you give and in the meals to those and the comfort given and mourning and sadness, the generosity given to others when you have, when you have plenty and others have need or even people giving out of their poverty to others, trusting the Lord and loving others. And all that is wonderful and good and yet when you trust and when you hold on to any one of things, because every one of us wants to believe that there's a secret balance, a scale, with which you put your sin that you know you deserve condemnation for. Religious people know guilt, right? But then you have the side where you put your good things, your good deeds, and say, well, you know what? I'm better than these things that I've done, or I'm better than these other people who have done worse. And you're just hoping that the scale goes this way for you, and that that's how God will deal with you. But doesn't this passage so clearly say that God's measurement scale is completely different than ours? And so we get to the purpose of the law that Paul talks about. Romans 3, verse 19 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You know, you might be, and you might tell, say, but Martin, how do I know? You know, what sin I'm violent doing? How do I know that in my good deeds, I'm doing these bad things? And I would say that, you know what? That's a great question because the Bible says you're even blind to your own sinfulness. I mean, can you imagine being colorblind to a specific shade? And let's say that that shade is all over your face and you look in a mirror and you can't see any of it. And so, yes, our blindness is terrible. But both our blindness and our wondering at where we can look to find how, how we are sinning is all, both in the same place. It's here in God's Word. God's Word is like a mirror that you hold up, Paul is saying, where what happens? What does it mean that every mouth will be stopped? Think about a courtroom. In a courtroom, you have a defendant and the defendant uses his words to justify himself, to make an excuse, to make a reason for why he should not be punished 
for what he has done. The person had it coming. Anyone would have done this. I couldn't help myself. And so we use words, however we can, to justify and to defend ourselves. You know, that's not from a courtroom. We learn it from when we're kids. Do your kids, if you have children, say, but so-and-so did this, or but I was running behind, or but I was late, or, or, or sometimes they just go, but, 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 as if like saying the word alone was like a defense. And it's not just children. We do it. We justify ourselves. We want to say, but... Whether the sin that we're committing, it's just too hard to not do. Or the good that we do overcomes the wrong that I do. We say, but. But Paul is saying, in the end, the word, which is that mirror for us that we hold up to ourselves, the word itself tells us clearly we have no excuse. There's this picture of that in final judgment. We would look at the word of God and we would condemn ourselves for our sin. And our mouths would be silent, stopped with no excuse before the Holy One of God. See, the word is wonderful. And actually, we'll get to even more about how the word is wonderful. But let me say a few verses. Psalm 119 is just a love song to God's word, to his law. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Or Psalm 40. I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. We are supposed to love God's word and know it. That the more we know it, it's like there might be a mirror in a dark room and you don't see the stuff. The more you know God's word, it's like the light goes up brighter in the room and you can see your sin more clearly. And that's what it does for us. But when we think that we can start following God's word, and that's the basis on which he will say that you are righteous. And we said righteous, another way to say that is you are acceptable before God. God invites you and is pleased to have you in his presence. That's what we want to hear. We want to hear that we're welcomed in. But when we think that it's on the basis of us following God's law, like religious people do and can, then we just, it's worthless for that. Just like looking in a mirror doesn't fix you up. Looking in a mirror will show you all the blemishes that you need to cover, all the hair that's out of place. But it is no cure. It is simply the measure against which you fail. Now, the thing is, the law is still wonderful. Jeremiah 1, 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I, God, will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the law. Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
that we were always meant to be those who perfectly followed and obeyed God's desires. And to know that is a wonderful and beautiful thing, even though in itself it brings no comfort to us. What do I mean there? All right, this illustration I'm going to use, fully knowing and loving those of you suffering just under, just the, under cancer. But imagine this. Let's say that you knew you had cancer, all right, but it wasn't diagnosed yet. Would you go to your doctor and say, you know what? I just want to get generally healthier. Can you give me stuff that I can do to get generally healthier? Now, that doctor might be well-intentioned and give all kinds of things. Well, exercise and eat your vegetables and do all this, stay away from red meat, and you can do all those things. Have you taken care of what is raging within you? And so the diagnosis itself, though it might come on the worst day of our lives, is still a joy because it is better than not knowing. And here, what the word of the Lord does for us in its beauty and its perfection, it tells us that we are dead. It tells us of our trouble. We are dead in our transgressions. It shows clearly who we are. Sinners. So there's no confusion about it. The diagnosis is not the cure. But apart from it, you will never look for. You will never seek and find what you need. You will never embrace the severity of your situation. And you will ignore the fact that you are a sinner. And God's justice must be satisfied. And R.C. Sproul said there are two ways that we can satisfy God's justice for our sin. And the first is you can satisfy it by being banished from God's presence forever. forever. We, the unrighteous. That's what it would take. And it would take all eternity. It would never end. And that's what we deserve. But we can't get well without admitting our sickness. We can't get well before looking at this passage and saying, it is my venom. It is my feet that are swift, swift to shed blood. It is my throat that is an open grave. And looking and seeing in what ways that you do this so that you're not just looking at killers and ISIS beheading others, but you're also looking at how you hate others and know that Christ counts it as murder. Or you look at others who have like just fallen in Ashley Madison and you don't think, mocking them and saying, ugh, but you pray, Lord, protect me from such a fate and shield my eyes and my heart Which brings us to the third point. Because technically in this passage, I could leave it as a cliffhanger. Next week, it gets so good. And so, you know, TV does that to us, right? We just stop. All right, go home. Try to, try to be happy this week after what I just dumped on you. But let me tell you, as we come to the Lord's table, that there is joy in starting from the right place. You see, our hope is in the one who is the opposite of everything we have just read about ourselves. Take, take a, let's see, verse, uh, verse 10 and on. 
All right, read the, uh, look at that as I say this. There is one righteous, yes, only one, one who understands, one who seeks for God. He has always turned to God. He is precious treasure. He does good. He alone and his name is Jesus. See, you look at your sin, the depravity of your heart, not to self-flagellate, not to be guilty and then try to do more works to overcome that because you'll never get there. As the light goes on brighter, all you'll see is more that is darker. But then you can see the crucified and risen Son who interceded for you and me. You see, this is what Paul understood in 1 Timothy 1. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now, Paul wasn't saying that, man, the worst sinners are out there are the ones who first killed other Christians. They're the losers, and I'm the worst of the losers. He's not saying that. He is saying, I know my heart the best better than anyone else's, and I know my sin. And so more than anyone else I know, I am the greatest of sinners. Can you read Romans 3 and say the same thing along with Paul? Make a contest out of it. You think you're bad. Let me tell you my sin. See, you want that. You need that. Because then you get to say what Paul says next. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. See, again, Sproul said the first way, accept banishment from God forever. But who wants that? The other way is you can accept the satisfaction that Jesus Christ has made for you and for me. And so, in that way, we come to this table. We come to the Lord's table where we see, in physical ways, a reminder of what Christ has done. And we will sing a song. It's a new song, but I love it. You're going to love it. And we get to sing words that say, Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilt. Now the curse of sin is no long, has no hold on me. Whom the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. But do you see that relationship? If you will treasure Jesus Christ, you must first acknowledge and abhor your sin. And so for the next few minutes, will you pray, meditate on, and grieve your sin? If you need to look at the passage to see yourself in it, then do that. But let's take a few minutes to grieve our sin so that in that way, we come to this place and remember 
that Jesus Christ has paid for that sin. How have your words and your deeds, which represent all that you are, dishonored God and misrepresented his holiness? Look upon your sin and acknowledge that no one is righteous. I am not righteous. No, not I. I have turned away and sought that which is worthless. And there is no righteousness within me that I can call my own. Brothers and sisters, when you can say that, then you can come to this table and find grace. You can come and find and be reminded of the goodness of God in Jesus Christ because he did not leave us to die as we deserved. But the Father sent His Son to pay for our sins in His body and in His blood. And so that's why we rejoice to come to the table. <laughs>